Welcome back to another Takes by the Lake from Cleveland.com. This is Doug Lamarice. You can follow me on Twitter at Doug, D-O-U-G-L-E-S-M-E-R-I-S-E-S. Read me at Cleveland.com. I'm not going to talk much now because I talked a lot already. With our three guests today, we are wrapping up the Indians, looking ahead on the Indians, and looking ahead on the Browns with three great local guests. First on the Indians, we're going to start with Steven Kubitsa. That's on Twitter at S-T-E-V-E-N-K-U-B-I-T-Z-A. He writes for Believe Land Ball. And we talked about what happened with the Indians uh, in the playoffs and uh, what to think about the roster. All right. So that's a really good interview with Steven Kubitsa. Then we have Joe Koblitz from Burning River Baseball. Okay, this is another great Indians breakdown. This one's a little different. Uh, You can follow him at Burning River BB. And we talked more about the minor leagues in the future. We also talked about what happened, what we looked ahead. What's coming in the minor leagues for the Indians? Um, What's the best way for them to improve themselves for next year? Should they deal prospects? Should they bring up more prospects? Are they going to have a lot of uh, new guys in the bullpen next year that are from the minor league system? So that's Joe Koblitz talking about what's next for the Indians. And then Browns with our old favorite, and I really wanted him this week because there's exciting stuff happening. It's Jake Burns. Uh, I burped. I burped right in the middle of saying Jake Burns. That is not an affront to Jake. That's just a reality of being 45 years old and eating bacon for breakfast. At Jake underscore Burns 18. Okay, he's been on Takes by the Lake multiple times. Uh, He does great work for the Orange and Brown Report. Um, you can follow his work at Brown's Film BDN. That's Brown's Film Breakdown. So it's at Brown's Film BDN on Twitter, Addition, additionally to Jake's Twitter handle. But he does stuff for Cleveland.com now. He's working with us. So he's going to do a breakdown once a week. Uh, make sure you find it on Cleveland.com. We wanted Jake involved with us, and we finally made it happen. So he he breaks down the Browns from a film perspective Um, as well as anybody out there. So we're thrilled to have him as uh, part of our Cleveland.com team, at least part of the time. And uh, as always, I'm thrilled to talk to Jake here on Takes by the Lake. So um, we're going to get to the podcast now. I'm just going to string these three interviews together, okay? So, like, you know, they're just going to run into each other because you don't need me interrupting the flow in the middle. Um, But I did want to read... Uh, the one review that we've gotten recently, and we'll always take your reviews for Takes by the Lake on iTunes. We appreciate you guys. Any feedback you want to offer, uh, it's always inspiring. It's always enlightening to have people reach out with their opinions about your bra- your podcast. And so let me say this. This is from Mistake by the Plain Dealer. From the tiresome title of this podcast to the weekly content, it doesn't get any worse than this one. If you like Cleveland sports, then this is not the podcast for you. Almost exclusively Browns coverage, never any interesting guests, never any opposing opinions. Every show the host screeches his tiresome slant ad nauseum. Very disappointing. Now he's bleeding into the other Cleveland.com podcast to drag them down. No thank you. 
So as always, thanks to you guys for the feedback. Uh, you can drop that at iTunes and the Apple Podcast Store. Um, always appreciate what you guys have to say about Takes by the Lake. So here come the guests. Thanks to you guys for listening. We're going to start off with Steven, then hit Joe, then hit Jake. We're doing Indians and Browns this week on Takes by the Lake. Happy to be joined on Takes by the Lake by Steven Kubitsa. Uh, writes about the Indians, and we're going to talk about the Indians, but Steven, why don't you just tell the folks sort of what you do and who you do it for. Yeah, so I write about the Indians for uh, Fansided, a uh, site in the Fansided network called Believeland Ball. Uh, so I've been there for a few years now. Cover some other sports, but specifically on the Indians at Believeland Ball. Very cool. Um, so let me go super broad and make you do all the work, because that's what I like to do on this podcast is have smart people on, and then I just sit back and relax. And you, we did a video chat for like four seconds, so you saw me sitting in my basement in my giant blue lounge chair with my white T-shirt on. I'm the laziest man in America. You do the work. Steven, is this Indians team possibly still a championship team basically as they're built? Or knowing who they're going to lose, do they have a lot they have to add to potentially be that in the next couple years? I may romanticize this team too much. I think that they can win as is. Uh, I think based on the abilities that they have, especially when you look at guys who are slumping like Ramirez, I mean the entire offense, essentially. Um, they have the ability to win it all. I think a team like the Astros, like I think you know, Mike Clevenger was saying, may have come in just better prepared. But I don't think that this Indians team is as bad as they looked. Um, obviously, in the bullpen, things are going to be a little difficult if you lose Miller and Allen. But at the same time, if they weren't relied upon this postseason as much as they were in the past or as they should have been based on their abilities, I don't see their losses as that, you know, hurting the team that much. So, yeah, I think, like I said, I may be romanticizing this group after the 2016 postseason and the first two games of the 2017 postseason, but I don't think they're that far away. I think they just had a really bad three games. So, Stephen, after they lost game three, we, we talked about this on our Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast at cleveland.com. I joined Paul Hoynes and Joe Noga for that. And we, we everybody knows, obviously, that Francisco Lindor going to arbitration is going to make maybe around $11 million next year. Um, we're entering the world where he's going to get paid. And everyone has talked about um, obviously the window before Lindor gets to free agency, and there are several more years that he's going to be an Indian, but they're going to have to start paying him now. I, I attach a lot of what I think about the Indians to the Lindor window. Um, does that make sense, do you think, when you have a guy who just seems like a an extraordinary talent offensively and defensively? Should Should the Indians be thinking in a way that says, We've got to do whatever it takes to try to, to maximize our chances to win while this guy is here? Or could you get yourself in trouble thinking that way and maybe putting too much focus on a guy, even if he's a superstar? Yeah, I think it's a good thing, especially considering this team has, I mean, essentially for a decade been built to this point. So I think it's almost a good excuse saying, hey, we've been in the postseason three years in a row. Why not? you know, kind of rally around or focus on this one guy, not really as an excuse, but, you know, this is a generational talent. We have some other guys like Kluber on the team, Ramirez, who is obviously under contract, but I mean, 
why not say we got one while we have Lindor here, let's just go crazy. Let's spend as much as we can. Obviously limited there with the budget they have. But yeah, I, as, as a take, I see no issue with that. And I'm also in the mindset that they should pay him whatever he wants since he is, you know, at the first stage of his career as opposed to like a Robinson Cano who's on the, you know, second stage or even third stage. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be really interesting um, just maybe what he wants to do. And I just think, obviously, there's there's certainly a chance that he's just never going to sign um, sign away any free agency years here just because maybe he has big goals in mind. And I know Paul Hoynes sort of talks that way a lot. But man, you know what? Like you can't, nothing's promised in the future. And you have this guy who is just an extraordinary player uh, in Cleveland for several more years at least. And, and the thing, Stephen, is that it's coupled with, it's coupled with four, four guys who, who are all number one or number two starters in this rotation with the top four guys there. I don't think people take it for granted, but to me that is such an edge on the world when you have four starting pitchers like that. How would you put into words what kind of foundation that is for the Indians? You have Lindor and Ramirez as a base on one side, but these four starters on the other side, I mean, there's, there's teams chasing pitching out there who'd kill for any of those guys. Yeah, I think if this is the right word, I think it's almost silly how good their rotation is. And I was, I'm laughing because earlier I wrote about um, the fact that the Indians aren't going to fire any coaches, which I completely agree with. That'd be a reactionary move, like Kerry Francona said, and a Twitter profile without a profile picture. So right away, kind of a little <laughs> sketchy there was saying Carl Willis needs to be fired. Uh, this pitching staff took a step back. I'm like, Did, I, I don't know. Those four starters are all pretty good. Um, and a lot of that probably falls in the front office for some people who were in the bullpen. But, I mean, just in the pitching staff, those four guys in general, even Bieber in there, Yep. it is it is insane to me that that is the case. And I, you know, I'm going to be honest, I think a lot of people do take it for granted, especially with the way people, I mean, I always say people, which is a lot of time just commenters on social media and Facebook, which I'm sure you deal with as well, <laughs> um, saying, oh, well, you know, Corey Kluber we got to trade him. Yeah. He gave up four runs. I'm like, this is, this is better than what they had in the nineties. They're just not executing on offense. You know, all the other facets of the game. Yeah, no, it really is. It's such a foundational thing. Um, when you looked at, when you watched those three games against the Astros, I mean, obviously Ramirez didn't hit Kluber got knocked around a little bit. Bauer hurting is hurting his ankle just threw everything off that obviously, if he's 100% healthy, he's your game two starter. What did you not like most about that three-game sweep? Did, was there something that stood out that really bothered you that you felt like that was the area that, or the, the player or the situation or something that they should have done better at? Yeah. So my main takeaway from it was that they obviously everyone's takeaway was the offense just wasn't there. So you were doomed automatically but the only thing I didn't really like I enjoyed Bauer coming out of the bullpen I think that's the best role for him given the injury and just in general because he basically has a rubber arm with the training he's been doing for so many years the only thing I really didn't like was the center field and right field positions in the starting lineup but at the same time I don't think Terry Francona had much of a choice Um, you know he could have put Greg Allen in center field 
But I think he did trust, you know, Jason Kipnis's veteran bat. And at the end of the day, the series didn't come down to Kipnis and Melky Cabrera. I know right. their starting alignment was different in Game 3 um, with Keuchel on the mound. But that was the only thing that stood out to me. I was just, as most fans were, just upset with the lack of execution. I think the pitching decisions were really overanalyzed coming out of the bullpen because you're talking about really trying to cling to a one-run lead, and maybe these pitchers know, like, man, if I make one mistake, we're done. So my issue is execution, really, that, you know, Kipnis and Cabrera wasn't the ideal outfield alignment, but like I said, at the same time, I'm not really sure what would be the ideal one. Yeah. what The, the thing, and I wrote about this a few months ago, um, it it feels like on some, well it's two things. Let me ask you this one specifically. It feels like the Indians and the Astros have a lot in common as teams. Great starting rotation. The Indians uh, bullpen of a couple years ago is what the Astros bullpen looks like now. Um, when you talk about when Ramirez moves to second, you think about Ramirez and and Lindor um, and and the Astros had Bregman at third, but then with Carrera and. Uh, who obviously didn't have as good of a year this year, but Altuve, like, their their rosters match up a little bit, but the Astros just seem like 10% better or 15% better across the way. Does it feel like to you like the Astros just might be a pain in the neck to get past if the Indians are trying to get to the World Series in the next couple of years? Because they, they maybe aren't going anywhere. You know, that's kind of my fear. You're looking at teams built very in the same fashion, but you almost get worried about kind of like looking at basketball, like, you know, if the Cavs had this great team, but then they run into a Warriors team. So it's like maybe if we're in a different era, we're having a different conversation about how many titles are won. Right. Um, I think the Astros winning the World Series gave them a whole different mindset. You have, I mean, they had Dallas Keuchel as their ace, and now he's their number three starter. So yep. sometimes you're just outmatched. Um I think this, but I think this ALDS was just a weird series where the Indians, for some reason, weren't playing their normal baseball. It looked like it was like lesser competition. So yeah. I, I really don't know. I'm hoping that that's not the case. I think the Astros are going to be good for a long time. I don't think the A's are going to hang and contend with them just because the way the A's have gone historically, um, with the way they manage their team, but. I do fear it, but at the same time, I know that October baseball is such a crapshoot at times that the Indians, just a few different breaks, a few better pitching performances could easily take them out in a five-game series. So the thing that that I find very interesting, and and again, Paul Hoynes was sort of bringing this up in our post-game podcast on Monday, and I think it's... I think it's valid, the idea that the Central is so bad it didn't push the Indians. You know, that they they win the division by 13 games. They're the only team above 500 in the division. And maybe it makes you soft a little bit. Now, the counter-argument to that is, thank God they were in the Central or they might not have even made the playoffs. You know, that that the Rays won 90 games, the Indians won 91, and the, the Rays are sitting home. So in a, in a world where the Red Sox won 108, the Astros won 103, the Yankees won 100, and the Indians won 91. This is expanding on my Astros question a little bit. Just the American League in general. The American League is clearly the better league right now. Um, the Indians sort of have this built-in advantage being in this crappy division where everybody else is rebuilding. But, but how do you see that 
shaking out in the next couple of years? And and do you see is it is it a blessing to be in the central, or do you maybe think that that it doesn't sharpen them when they spend their you know half their schedule playing these lousy central teams? I'll be honest, the entire season, I was denying that playing in the AL Central was an issue. I was saying, you know, anyone who would bring it up, I'm like, nope, invalid. And then they get swept by the Astros, and I go, wow, maybe I was just completely ignorant of the situation all year. Because, I mean, I was, I mean, I'm not saying just me going to a game sums up the season, but I saw them get whooped by the Tigers. And I was like, that's that's not good. That is not a good sign yep. when you're watching you know, the Red Sox roll over other contenders. Red Sox and Yankees both what, win in 100 games. Um, and and the Rays in that division. So I think, I don't know if it was an issue because, you know, heading in the head postseason experience and they should be able to get up and have the same mindset. Maybe, though, the fact they actually faced adversity once knocked them down. I, I think you'd really have to hear it from the players themselves if they'd yeah. be willing to admit it. But with the division and the American League in general, I think it goes in waves so often. I mean, the Indians last year had their crazy winning streak, 102 wins total. Right. So, I mean, last year they go in as the favorite and, and lose. So, I mean, easily the Red Sox could have gone in the favorite and lost if a few things went differently. So, I don't I think year to year, it, like I said, it goes in waves so much. And I'm hoping the Central gets a little better. Um, but... I, I really think you have to hear it from the players. I think that'd be the most unique standpoint. But I guess for, for me giving a hot take, <laughs> I, I, at the end of the day, I figured out maybe it was kind of an issue and they really didn't face any adversity all year. It's one of those things. It's like, you know who probably got sharpened this year? The Rays. The Rays are probably really sharp by playing 38 games against the Red Sox and the Yankees. They're also home. They also didn't get to be in the playoffs. So on some level, it's like, I understand the idea of like, oh man, Maybe you need to be pushed a little bit, but also it's like, you know what? This is kind of a good thing to have a division that you're almost guaranteed to win. Um, I don't know how much you've delved into this kind of thing, Stephen, but I like people putting people on the spot. Is there a guy, is there a player out there that might be available in trade or is a free agent that you would love to see on the Indians next season that you think is a reasonable person that they could acquire? You know, I haven't looked into it yet because I've been so focused on the raises they're going to have to be paying. Seriously. Uh, with the arbitration salaries. So right now, I mean, last year we were talking about a bat and, you know, arguing between Bruce, Santana, and then we end up with Yonder Alonso. So this year, I'm just curious to see who they retain. And then I know this, it's kind of the easy way out of your question. But I just haven't even thought of it because I'm like, how much money are they going to be willing to spend? And are they going to keep Miller and Allen? Is that going to take up all their money? So I honestly haven't looked into it because I'm so worried. And it's not my money. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm not, I obviously want them to spend, but I just really don't know who they can afford, especially if the market's going to. I think last year was kind of a fluke in a way of a lot of teams going, we're saving up. And also these guys just aren't worth that money. But I don't think it's going to be a crazy down market again. So the Indians might be at a big disadvantage. Yeah. I'll let you go with this one then, Stephen. We always talk about windows with the Indians. And the window, is the window closed? Is the window open? Like, I don't know. If 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 0% is the window slammed shut on your fingers, 
and 100% open is a beautiful spring day and the birds are chirping and the breeze is blowing and it's time for baseball and this window is wide open. How, how, how open is this championship window for the Indians that with this core, they have a realistic shot to win a World Series before some of these really key guys end up leaving Cleveland? You know, I've been bummed all week about the Indians. It was a rough one. So I'm just going to end this with a positive take. I'm going to go as high as 95%. Okay. Because I saw them, we all saw them, in 2016 with our biggest hits of the year. You had Brandon Geyer followed by Rajay Davis. So these are not superstar guys that were being relied upon. They have guys like Jose Ramirez, who in the past two postseasons has just been terrible. Um, Lindor has given us some highlights, but he hasn't been like on fire. And you've had all these guys struggling. I think if everyone plays to their potential, which is completely reasonable to believe that they can, that there's no reason why next year and the year after, you know, depending on a few changes they make, that they can't easily march back to the World Series. And if the National League continues to be kind of the secondary league to the American League, I see no reason why the Indians can't be title contenders for the next two, three years. Stephen Kubitsa, is, is, he's looking out the window, and the sun is shining on his face. And you know what? I think, I think it's very easy for Indians fans to be down right now. But I think when you have a rotation like that, that basically almost 162 games out of 162, you know you're sending a guy to the mound that gives you a good chance to win. I mean, there, there are teams that set that 50 out of 162 games – they think that way. And then the other 112 times, they think, well, we better score eight today because our starting pitcher stinks. Like, that is a great foundation, and they have some extraordinary individual talents. And I don't think they're ever going to have a lineup one through nine that's going to, you know, scare people because they just they don't have the money to do that. But they have to be smart. They have to get a little lucky, maybe, with an offseason acquisition. Um but really, it really is still there. They they could use they could use maybe a piece and a little bit of luck. And then I think you're right in the end, Stephen. They just need their best guys to be at their best next October. And at the the unfortunate thing is like I have a feeling. Would you guess right now that that next year's regular season will be very similar to this one, and we're going to end up back in this same spot twelve months from now, just hoping they don't have three bad games in a row. But I would imagine that that they're going to win somewhere between 90 and 100 games and win the Central, right? I think they're going to end up – we're going to end up in the same spot. But I think the regular season will have a different feel to it just because we saw what this regular season was like and how it ended. So I'm hoping that maybe um, there's a little more magic. There's a little more energy from fans too because I know personally I was waiting, just waiting for October, and you pin your hopes of six months on the three games. Um kind of ruins the whole season for you, to be honest. So I'm thinking there's going to be a different energy. But then again, I mean, we're all going to be excited come February when spring training starts and we finally see those guys back on the field again. Stephen Kubica, thanks so much for your time. Uh, enjoyed the conversation. Good insight on the Indians. And uh, we appreciate you here on Takes by the Lake from Cleveland.com. All right. Thanks for having me. All right. Happy to be joined here on Takes by the Lake by Joe Koblitz. Um, Joe, thank you for taking time out of your day. Why don't you let the listeners here know a little bit about what you do covering the Indians, and then we'll get into what you think of them. All right, yeah. Uh, 
like you said, I'm Joe. Uh, I run BurningRiverBaseball.com. My part of it, I do work with the uh, Major League stuff. I write about the Major League team. But my primary focus right now is on the Arizona League teams. So we have Arizona, two Arizona League Indians, uh, rookie league teams, and then right now the Arizona Fall League is going on uh, where I'm covering the Glendale Desert Dogs. Nice. How, did the, do the Desert Dogs have like a cool logo or anything? Yeah, they do. <laughs> it's like a coyote in front of the moon. It's yeah. Oh, yeah. I might get one of those. Um, so listen, Joe. So let's delve into your expertise there first. Um, and then we'll we'll back up a little bit into, into sort of the end of the Indian season. But just generally, as we're projecting forward with the Indians, is is there a lot of reason still for, for optimism with what's in the farm system right now? And as we know, the Indians have to replenish from within, and they have uh, some big-name, big-money guys they're going to be losing this offseason. Like, how in general should fans feel about what's in the farm system and what can legitimately help them at the major league level or maybe in trades in the next year or two oh, well i'll say if you read burning river baseball at all or follow me on twitter you know that i've been kind of infuriated over the past few seasons about the indians complete unwillingness to use their own minor leaguers i think they do a good job drafting and the guys they pick up in trades are well it's kind of like 50 50 honestly <laughs> but but the guys they get sometimes are fantastic and they seem so hesitant to actually use them. And so I've fought for Francisco Mejia, and then I fought for Yandy Diaz, and for Eric Haas, and all those guys. However, at this point, the, the AAA team is, is very poor as far as uh, talent goes. The best hitter on the team is probably Yu Chang Chang, and unfortunately he's a shortstop. Mm. So he, he's a shortstop who plays third base, which yeah. is not really what the Indians want. So I would like to – I've been saying for about three years – that they should trade him. Uh, get everything you can for him because he's never going to start for the Indians, likely. Uh, uh, you know, the, where they really need help is in the outfield. Yep. And un- unfortunately, they do have some really good outfielders, but they're all two to five years away. I mean, there's nobody, there's really nobody on the top that I would say this guy is a starting major league outfielder. Interesting. So, so w- w- do you have a philosophical thing of, an organization like the Indians, when obviously they've, they've, they've stretched themselves on payroll in recent years, but we know they have limitations. I was of the mind of like, trade everybody. Trade everybody in the minor league system that you have to right now to try to win a World Series with Corey Kluber and Trevor Bauer and Carlos Carrasco and Jose Ramirez and Francisco Lindor. You have superstars on this roster burn the farm system, and then pay the consequences later, maximize right now. Tell You you understand the minor leagues a thousand times better than me. Am I crazy? Or would that be a smart thing for them to do right now? And then you can stink for a couple years and start over. Well, they did that. In uh, 1998, 1999, that's what they did. They burned the entire minor league system. They had terrible drafting. Uh, except for CC Sabathia, all the other drafts were, were awful in the 90s. And they essentially it led to a period of time that was, I mean, really almost a decade long of losing and being very terrible teams just over and over again. So I, you can't, you don't want to sell everything. But I do think uh, when Shapiro left, they brought up the term prospect hoarding. And I definitely think they're guilty of that. 
I, I've seen these guys, and, and the Indians have so many farm teams. They, they don't have to have as many farm teams. They have two DSL teams. They have two AZL teams. They have a short season team as well as the two rookie league teams in Arizona. Like You don't need that many teams because chances are only a few of those guys are really going to be major leaguers. So the idea that you have to hold on to everybody is insane. And the amount of – like they have a lot of really good high-quality relief pitchers in the minors right now, and that none of them pitched in the major leagues this year. I like I so why do you have them all <laughs> right like are you right. is there a point because they had I mean Kieran Lovegrove Henry Martinez uh, Cole Salser there's a few guys who I think really could have been in the big leagues this year and and obviously Ben Taylor is another one he pitched for a minute and then was sent back down all those guys could have been in the big leagues this year and the fact that they weren't I, I'm really wondering what's the point so yes if you could get something for these guys trade them I, they're not with the exception of the biggest of the big name, Tristan McKenzie, to me, I've seen him pitch a lot in person. He's incredible. He's the most amazing pitcher I've ever seen. And if they really? traded him, I think I'd be done. Yeah, okay. Okay, right. But but use these other guys to help fill in on the roster where some other, some other teams might just, you fill every hole you need with free agency. But if you build up a farm system, that's part of what it's for, is to have enough excess at certain positions that you can trade some of these guys. So... So what would you do? And then we'll, and then I want to get to the to what happened against the Astros. But if if you were Chris Antonetti and and uh, you you were help helping decide what this offseason should look, should look like, knowing the farm system like you do, who would be the guys that you're targeting that like they they have to help us now? Who are the guys that you would say let's trade them and and and. What would you, if you said, well, let's make one big move at the major leagues to add somebody here or there, just be the team president for a second and tell me what you would do this offseason? The move has to be to get an outfielder. There's no outfielders in the system that are ready right now. Uh, Bradley Zimmer's out at least for half the next season. Greg Allen, I've always thought, would be a bench player. I like him as a bench player, but he's not a starter, really. You're losing Brantley, Chisholm Hall. And I, you're losing Cabrera, but I don't, I mean, whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're really, you're, you're bringing back an outfield of Brandon Geyer and Greg Allen and no left fielders unless you want to put Kipnis out there. And that, that's just a mess. So and you I need to yeah. either, if you're going to spend on free agency, that's where you need to spend. If you're going to trade, both the Marlins and Diamondbacks are selling. They've came out this week and uh, said so they're going to essentially dismantle both franchises. They both have great outfielders to choose from. If you have to trade a starting pitcher, now I saw someone the other day talking about trading like Corey Kluber. That's silly, but you could trade. Uh, honestly, I think you could trade Shane Bieber, and it wouldn't kill you because McKenzie's close. Uh, you could trade Chowching Chang. You could tra- trade Aaron Savale. There's a lot of guys towards the the middle and top that I think other teams would want. Yep, well, and you could trade those guys potentially to get an outfield. And I've, I, like I said, Yu Chang Chang is right there. To do something with the guy, <laughs> and, and the thing, that, and I don't this. I, I know this can sound crazy, but I understand the fact that like it is a great advantage over the rest of the world to have four starting pitchers like they have. Those guys, they have guys. You know, Mike Clevenger on some teams would be an ace. You know, I mean that's yeah. Um, start- I think uh, I think in WAR they had all all five pitchers were in the top thirty. So if you think about it that way, all of them would have been an ace on a team. <laughs> yeah, which is, I mean, ridiculous to think about. And, and I'm not saying I would do this, but the idea of, 
especially as it, when it comes to like Bieber. It's like he's your fifth starter. An everyday outfielder is more valuable than your fifth starter. And I'm not saying trade Carrasco or trade Clevenger, but but I'm saying they we've seen what it looks like when you have incredible pitching depth. And it's a tremendous thing, especially in a weak division. It it gets you through the season and it's awesome. And then you get to the postseason and you don't need five starting pitchers, but you sure as heck need three outfielders who can hit. They, I think this is absolutely an opportunity. There was a time when they maybe could have traded Danny Salazar for a bat, and now we saw what happened there. Like uh, Again, I'm not saying trade one of their four main starters, but it seems like they have to be able to think about trading arms for bats one way or another. Yeah, absolutely. Or, I mean, the other way, obviously the bullpen is just a mess. And again, like I talked about bringing those guys up this year that they didn't bring up uh, to play as rookies. Now next year, you're looking at like four guys returning, and the rest of the bullpen's all going to be brand new. And the guys that are returning are not Andrew Miller and Cody Allen. It's right. it's Tyler Olson and, and uh, Dan Otero. So yep. the idea of them fixing that bullpen, maybe you fix the bullpen by converting a starter into a reliever. And to make that work, it would have to be a really good starter. Uh, it, I, I hate the concept of I, like losing Trevor Bauer. I hate the way they used him in the postseason. Uh I feel like that's such a waste. But somebody like that needs to possibly be moved. or <laughs> it, it, They have to get better value out of their starting rotation. And it's hard because, again, I, and I've covered baseball teams where, um, you know, they didn't, you don't have one starter. You go to spring training, and it's like the middle of, of March, and you're thinking, like, who's our opening day starter? We have no idea. Again, the Indians are in a privileged, privileged situation. Matters. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And, and Indians, I mean, we've we've seen that. But the idea of, I don't think you can be afraid of trading some of your strength to bolster some of the areas where you need help, especially when you know you can't just solve all those areas with money. So let's look backwards now a little bit. The, the way it ended to get swept by the Astros, did, did you find that disheartening in any way? Or is there some part of it that's like, man, the, the Astros are awesome? The Indians won a weak division. They maybe had some things that happened all year that made you think this team was good but not great. Did that kind of go maybe as you expected? Uh, yeah, it's revolting because I think the 2017 Indians were the best team I've ever seen in my life. And this team was worse than them, and they had the same result. So I mean, like, yep. it's always a crapshoot in the playoffs. But I think this team that played the Astros, if they played them 10 times, they'd lose that five-game series nine times. They're just completely outmatched. And yes, I I have an article coming out on this on Monday uh, about the things that I would fix in the offseason going into next year. And one of them is you cannot be complacent with winning a division that is so awful, and you knew going into it it was awful, so you say, oh, it's okay, we'll just play Melky Cabrera. We'll have three guys in the outfield who can't move. That's okay. No one will ever hit the ball in the outfield. And of course, <laughs> somebody's going to hit the ball in the outfield at some point. And there were a, there were a couple... Uh, in game three, uh, there were a couple bad ones. Uh, it didn't hurt him as much as it could because they strike out so many guys. But but there were definitely some plays that should have been made that you know, that weren't being made by those guys. And, I mean, you're really going to go in the playoffs and you're going to say Melky Cabrera's our starting right fielder. Yeah. This is a power position. Yep. If you have a guy who can't field, he better be able to hit some home runs and <laughs> at least hit. Yeah, they're just they're punting. They're punting on a spot where, like you said. 
anymore. You expect 30 home runs out of your right fielder. It's almost like a given. Or if not, he's some kind of defensive genius with a huge arm who covers a lot of ground. So to just give that position yeah. away is uh, is very frustrating. Um, but let, let, me, let me ask this though, Joe, and, and I was very hard on Jose Ramirez after they lost that game. It's just to me the idea of a guy who is one of the three best players in baseball the past two years and has done nothing in two consecutive postseasons. I understand it's a fickle game, but the thing that is a little bit hard for me to get my head around is that the past two years we've seen, and even this year knowing that they had holes, we still we still have not seen the best of the Indians in the postseason. We, we They're a team that's driven by Lindor, Brantley, Ramirez hitting, and and. and, and and Encarnacion, and this great starting pitching. And then they get to the playoffs this year. Jose Ramirez is 0-for-11. Corey Kluber gets knocked around, and they get swept. And it's like, okay, well, they they weren't what they are. You know, it's not like they played the Astros, and I know part of it is playing the Astros. The Astros are really good, so they hit Corey Kluber. They're really good, so Jose Ramirez is not going to hit 500. But it's just hard to me the reality of, I feel like the last two years, we, we haven't seen them at their best because Ramirez has done nothing. Kluber hasn't been himself. And part of me still wonders, man, if you just get the best of them in the postseason, that's still, even with their holes, might be enough to get it done. Do you sort of agree with what I'm saying or would you say no because of this or that? I think they absolutely should have beat the Yankees last year. And that bugs me. Like I said, I think that team was better than this year. Th- this year's team was. So that loss bugs me more than this one because also the Astros are I, – I, I guess I'll root for the Astros to make it to the World Series because they're not going to root for Boston. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, only people from Boston root for Boston and only people I, from New York root for the Yankees. Everybody else is for, for the in Astros. 2004. Yeah. I felt bad for him ever <laughs> since. I <laughs> regretted that. I, I have a wonderful stat for you. Uh, I, I keep track of all the stats, uh, all sorts of stats on my own uh, – just for the fun of it, really, and the Indians have had thirty-four guys ever with at least twenty uh, with uh, with at least thirty postseason at bats. Okay, Jose Jose Ramirez has slugged two fifty-three. He is the absolute worst player in the history of Indians <sighs> postseason baseball. He's lower than uh, Rajay Davis, <sighs> who slugged two sixty-five. I mean, it's just it, it's embarrassing. It doesn't make any sense. Like, I don't think. I don't believe in clutch. Uh, man. And you and a lot of other people, <laughs> the other yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, no, I don't think he just got there and choked. I don't think the moment was too big for him and that, yeah, no, no, no. I Yeah, but so it doesn't make sense then. It doesn't make sense. I, I think it's random variance, and I think maybe, I, you could say maybe he got tired, but he's been playing in the majors for enough years now. I don't think a full major league schedule is really going to hurt him. Yep. It's, it's potentially somewhat to do with the position change. We have seen that in the past where a guy changes positions and he stops hitting. And I, I think that could be because Ramirez prides himself on not only being a great hitter, but a great fielder as well. And he was not fielding very well at, at second base. And he hadn't played there in a, in a long time. Right. Uh, essentially since last postseason. And so... I think maybe that could have gotten his head a little bit. So yeah. you put you put all these things together. Oh, I'm switching positions. I'm, you know, I, I have to. I'm not playing well defensively at this position, and now I'm not hitting. And I think that kind of thinking can get you into a hole. 
that he just wasn't able to get out of by yep. the end of the season. And I know Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole make it hard too, but again, I just, just man, that guy's. But they've they've crushed Verlander so much. I, I I had some numbers on that too, and normally you don't take batter pitcher stats seriously, but it's like a hundred innings or something ridiculous. They faced him a lot, yep. and he hasn't. He was the worst ERA against the Indians out of any team he's ever faced. And we've seen it on a game by game match where they were they would crush him. So I'm not gonna yep. use that as an excuse. <laughs> so let me last one, Joe, very specifically. What would you do at and I asked you before, we started off by saying you'd be in charge of the roster. What would you do at second and third next year? Would you keep Ramirez at second, maybe play Yandi at third? Would you put Ramirez back at third, play Kipnis at second, find a different second baseman? What would your plan be at second and third base? I think whatever you do has to be permanent. And I do like the idea of leaving Ramirez at second base because you have so many other options. I, I think I love Kipnis. He's been one of my favorite players forever, but I think it's about time that they move on from him. I, I just don't see him. He did hit well. He had a good season offensively in the end, but I he's not as good as some of these players coming up. And if you could trade him possibly or put him in more of a bench role maybe, I, I'd like to see... Uh, Yandy Diaz or Yu Cheng Chang playing third base for the Indians next year rather than uh, Ramirez. Okay. Very interesting. Joe, just tell the people again really quickly if they want to find your work and read you, where can they do that? It's uh, burningriverbaseball.com. We're part of the Sports Daily Network. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at burningriverbb. Joe? Very nice having you on. Thanks so much for the help. Um, I'll be uh, I'll be reading you for your Arizona Fall League coverage, and hopefully uh, down the road, maybe we can have you back sometime. All right, thank you. All right, here on Takes by the Lake with my main man, Jake Burns. Love his work, respect his work, and I, you know what? I know you guys love his work and respect his work, and the exciting thing is that Jake is doing great stuff, and now he's doing some great stuff for Cleveland.com. So, Jake... Thank you for joining Takes by the Lake again, and just explain to the people where they can find you, what you're doing, and what you're doing now for Cleveland.com as well. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, uh, you know, obviously, Doug, thanks for having me. I think this is my third time I've, I've jumped on with you. I really think uh, people started to figure out a little bit of who I was when I came on your pod the first time. To be honest, that was really my, my first sort of mainstream break, so I've told you behind the scenes, thank you a hundred times, but another public thank you, uh, you know, as as it, it really started for me at waiting for next year and got a chance to uh, write on the Browns because I really didn't want to write football. At the time, I was really interested in writing Indians, but they needed a football guy. and My football is my back, and I've been trying to get away from it and not think about it a whole bunch, giving it up <laughs> in the, the playing and coaching. But yeah, I got into Browns Twitter, uh, that corner of Twitter that is rather interesting and I found no one's doing film, and I wanted to jump in doing film and teaching people football, and it took off, and you brought me on, and from there, you know, waiting for next year was sort of the springboard for me. They obviously do great work as one of the best independent blogs. I really can't speak highly, you know, any more highly of what Craig, Craig Lendl and, and Scott do, um, you know, the owners there, and Andrew at waiting for next year. But so many of those guys have been influential and in guiding me down a path of unique something unique, something different, something nobody else is doing. And that's sort of where I carved my niche. The OBR, the Orange and Brown Report's kind of where I call home for the most part right now. They they, they brought me in and um, kind of platformed me doing uh, a lot more film work for their subscribers. And then, yeah, like you mentioned, uh, Cleveland.com kind of about, I'd say a month and a half ago, we started engaging and just, hey, would you be 
would you be interested in this? This is something we want. We obviously have Mary Kay. We have yourself, Doug. We have Dan Labby, who do great work um, covering the team all the time. But an X and O sort of ex-football player um, covering some angle of deep dive X and O stuff would be something that the fan base would be interested to read um, on Cleveland.com. So, you know, we finally got everything ironed out. And, you know, last week we wrote a piece on a couple of popular passing concepts that the Browns used to to get Mayfield and, and Higgins sort of connected. Those two haven't had any problem connecting, but just a couple schemes they used to get those guys some big plays Sunday against the Ravens. So I'm going to continue every, every probably every Tuesday, because that's when the All-22 wide-angle film comes out, posting something for you guys. I, I consider myself really lucky. This has kind of taken off like crazy in the past, you know, the past really 12 months. It's It's been neat. It's been unique. Fan bases. I've met so many more people, Yeah. you know, like – you meet people, you have your friends and all that stuff, but then you go into Brown's Twitter and you see people that are like, these people care like I care. And I've just met so many lifelong friends I think I'll have now through this. And it just, it couldn't be any cooler. And, it, and it's been a unique experience for me. And obviously I'm really lucky to, to, to join you guys there at cleveland.com. Well, I think it that, I don't know if it's unique to the Browns. I would imagine all NFL fan bases have these dedicated fans, but I do think there's just a lot of smart people on Browns Twitter, people who follow the Browns, who talk about the Browns, there are a lot of these independent websites that do great work, that have interesting voices, um, like you mentioned, Orange and Brown Report and Waiting for Next Year and a lot of other sites. Um, and I think it's really good for us to have a guy like you involved with Cleveland.com. So I'm really excited this, is, this has happened. Um, I hope all you guys listening to this will make sure you catch Jake's work um, at Cleveland.com, like we said, once a week. Um, and it's a great addition um, to what to what we're already doing on the Browns. So, Jake, very excited to have you. And uh, like I like I, I always say at Takes by the Lake, we are star makers. We love to bring new talent to the world. And someday, Jake, I will be working for you, and you will um, be saving me from living in the gutter as a mainstream journalist. So, thank you to you in advance, Jake. For the job you'll eventually give me. Um, yeah. Let me. I, I want to talk. I just want to talk about the Browns now. And and let me tell you, Jake, my fear. And I need an X and O's guy to tell me if I'm nuts or not. I think perhaps the Browns have entered an era here at two, two, and one of being a normal, competitive NFL team. And I think perhaps that fans have been so starred for that and it's been not what they have been um, for the previous two seasons that they are reading this as them being now a winning team that like look out NFL here comes the Browns like the Browns are ready to 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 take on everybody they're a force to be reckoned with where I sort of maybe think they're just getting to the point where like yeah maybe they can win on Sunday it doesn't mean they will win but it means maybe they can win. And I'm worried people might be getting too excited at normal competitiveness. Do you know what I'm saying or am I nuts? No, that's a that's a good point. It's fair. It's here's where I'm at. I have never seen a team where I sit there myself and watch or I care I, even I've cared about the team that could be really good, but they could also be really bad. And I don't know which one they are. Like they could easily, you can make a justifiable case for this team as 5-0. and 
not hard to do. You yep. can look at each game and pinpoint three or four instances in which it goes in the Browns' direction. And, it, and, and really in those situations, the odds were in the Browns' favor, and they should have won those games. So um, – you can make, like I said, a justifiable case for five and zero, but you can also make a justifiable case for like a one and four. So um, I, I'm with you. It's very weird. It, it's sort of like, you know, the the the, the feeling that the, that the Browns give the rest of this fan base is, is, in my opinion, pretty esoteric. I don't think anybody else in the NFL, their fan base feels the way we feel about our team. Like we stuck through one and thirty one, mm-hmm. which is one of the worst st- stretches in. In, in NFL history and we come out on the other side. And like you said, Doug, you made a good point. Like we've won a couple games, like we're respectable and we, we, I, I, this is just me. I can't speak for the fan base, but I find myself saying each week they're going to get beat pretty badly. Like I just have a feeling like I watch these other games, like Drew Brees, the same, the way the saints have played against everybody other than the Browns is pretty wild. And then you watch like the Ravens playing. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm in limbo with you. They're probably pretty good. They, they, I, I don't. I don't know. They're probably pretty good. They're okay. They play everybody tough. Like I look at this weekend against the Chargers, and I see a team, the Chargers, who should probably beat Cleveland pretty comfortably. They have a guy. Yes. The only quarterback who's gave the Browns a big fit is Derek Carr, and I consider Phil, uh, Phillip Rivers to be sort of the graduate, or, or um, I should say, the doctorate version of that quarterback. Guy who uses the ball uh, down the middle of the field. Linebackers are going to be in trouble because he uses tight ends well. Last year he used Gates and Hunter Henry pretty excessively. They have two really good running backs who can catch the ball out of the backfield, and the defense gets after the quarterback a little bit. So, like, my mind tells me this should be a game that we should lose, but I've said that. I felt like I fell against the grain every week in terms of my team climbing uphill, and they're they're hanging in games, and they're beating. Like, I'm in a couple group chats with friends, and I'm just so down on the Browns, and I think maybe I need to change – my, my stance on this, I mean, there was no denying, Doug, I think we even had conversations on it. There was talent here last year. Yeah. The biggest di- the, the biggest difference is the quarterback. I mean, the NFL is so quarterback-driven. You put in uh, a quarterback who I consider, and pro football focus right now, considers to be playing at a top-10 level in the league. It, ch- it changes everything, man. It really, every drive you go out there, you have a chance to score. He's a temperature raiser. He's, a, he's what I call a needle mover for a franchise, and he's doing those sorts of things. They're playing with a confidence that I don't think I've seen them play with in some time. And uh, I just, I think they think they can play with them, anybody on the schedule now. And I think they're pretty dangerous. I, I, but I, man, I don't, I don't know. I, they, they, I just feel like they're due to get beat pretty bad. And every time they go out, they, they are somehow leading or right in the mix of these games. And, and you sit there and kind of scratch your head and you pinpoint some of the flaws on the team. And you're like, what's not adding up? Because A plus B, you know, does not equal C in these scenarios to me. But I'm just enjoying the ride. I'm just enjoying having this thing called football that it's always felt like football, at least for the past three or four or five years. Even, you know, kind of post-dating the 2014 first half ride we got right it's like fo- football is this thing for everybody else everybody else gets to enjoy <laughs> this really fun thing and, and and we have like a team but it's like you know it's just they're, they're cute like they're our team and we support them even though they're terrible but now we actually can kind of i'm i don't know about you but i'm kind of excited to see sunday kind of what it all what it will look like with some expectations and playing at home and uh, a team that has sort of dark horse Super Bowl contender status. Right. I thought that the Ravens game was going to be, if they can play with Baltimore, they can play with anybody. And they, 
they outplayed Baltimore. They they should have won by more than twelve to nine, in my opinion. So maybe we do have a good team, Doug. What do you think? See, I mean, I think it's it's just it's it's weird to me. Like you said, you can. It's just the angle. It's the angle at which you look at this team. You know, it's like a. It's like a painting, and you look at it from one direction, and you, and you think one thing, and then you look at it from another direction, and, and you think another. I thought they made Baltimore look pedestrian. I looked at yeah. Baltimore watching that game, and I thought to myself, how's Baltimore 3-1? and one? Flacco stinks. Nobody on this team scares me. What? Baltimore? Baltimore's terrible. So... That the Browns made them look that way, right? That's a credit to the Browns' defense, especially for making them look that way. But let me ask you this, Jake. If Michael Crabtree catches that third down pass in the end zone with a minute left and the Ravens go ahead instead of kicking the tying field goal, we're everything else in that game would have been the same except the Ravens probably would have won. The Browns would have gotten the ball back and had a chance to march just like they did. But you know what I mean? Like it's my point is not it's not, hey, look out for the Browns. It's more like, hey, they can compete. But I feel yeah. like people got really excited this week, and if Crabtree catches a pass that hits him in the hands, you know, 59 minutes and, and 48 seconds of the game are the same game, but people are looking at it in a completely different way. And I think that's the reality of they're in stuff, but they're not going out. I don't know what team on the schedule the Browns are just going to beat like 35 to 10. You know what I mean? Like, I think they're going to play a lot of competitive games, which is great. And it's fun and it's awesome. They're definitely fun. But I don't know that we're at the point of, hey, look out for the Browns. Because if Crabtree catches that, different story. That field goal kick was the worst game-winning field goal I've ever seen in my life. That knuckled through. We're still debating whether it was blocked or not. He's the Greg Joseph is some kind of hero. That was an awful kick. If that doesn't go through and they tie again, all of a sudden we're talking about the Browns don't know how to put a game away and that kind of thing. And it comes down to the fact that a knuckleball went through. So that's what the NFL is, right, Jake? That all these little things make a difference. The Browns are good enough for the little things to make a difference. But I just don't want people to think like, hey, the Browns are coming for you. Because I don't think they're quite there yet. No, I, I certainly don't think so either. And there's there are parts of the Browns game that are really a problem. Like I don't know if you saw it gets a ton. Of, it always gets a ton of run. It's it's Colin Cowherd's little segment today on Baker Mayfield where he talked about the Browns are winning despite quarterback play. See, I don't I don't really see it that way. I see it as the Browns are winning sort of despite special teams play and yep. and sort of and sort of despite their own kind of being in their own in their own way like the penalties and i think that there are some real coaching blunders that are still happening i mean i'm not i'm not gonna sit and call for heads that's not what i'm doing but there are some if you watch football and understand football there's some really head scratching coaching decisions that are made every now and again so like i don't watch the game and say man the browns are really winning despite baker mayfield struck that has never crossed my mind it's crossed my mind with tyrod but it never crossed my mind with baker so like it, it, they, they are never going to like you. You made the point that they're never going to be someone thirty-five to ten. Yeah, that's never going to happen because they're a too still too young and I think too mentally weak. And and then if you add in special teams, they have no advantage over anybody. And they're they're on track right now based on that Football Outsiders DVOA to be the worst special teams, quite possibly the worst special teams I've ever tracked. That's how bad they are so far. So I know yep. they brought on Dontrell Hilliard. I don't 
I don't even know that returns were the problem. It, it is other aspects, uh, discipline, penalty play, things like that. It, I just documented on the film breakdown page I run that they almost gave up two punt blocks again. So um, I, I don't know. Here's my opinion. They're 2-2-1, two, two and one, and that's probably what they should be. Yes. They're not good. They, they, they have... They have a good defense, but that defense is a little bit risk-reward. It's actually a lot of bit risk-reward. They blitz quite a bit. They play uh, sort of spot-drop coverage. Instead of finding men, they drop to spots, and that causes them some trouble sometimes. They run the risk of man-to-man, which is always a risk in the NFL, no matter who you put out there. And then you're obviously – they're capitalizing on turnovers. So turnovers can kind of be capricious, man. Those things can go up. Those things can go down. You just – you never know which way the football is going to bounce. 15 turnovers in five games is pretty silly, and that's great. Like, they're doing those things, and that's awesome. That's why they're the second-ranked DVOA defense in the NFL. So that's great. The offense is sort of coming along. They're sort of gathering steam slowly. They're going to get there, but there are a lot of new pieces yelling together. But for them to put up 40 points and and and, and, the, and the first real NFL start for a rookie quarterback is real. Like, they did that. They didn't. They, none of those things were handed to them. Like, I thought the Raiders were given some points because of Browns' turnovers. I thought the Browns earned all 42 points. So, um, those two, those two phases right there, I think each time they go out Sunday, they can win. But if you're always trying to overcome you know, struggling, and I mean really struggling special teams and overcoming an undisciplined group of penalties that are committed. And you can really you can really blame whoever you want to blame for the penalties, but the fact of the matter is you're committing some penalties. If you, you know, maybe you don't commit 10 because you feel like you're being slighted by the officials, and I even started to feel that way Sunday. But they're committing undisciplined penalties, and they're, they, have, they have really yet to overcome that in a game where it's felt like the Browns have been, you know, my team is more disciplined today. They have not committed penalties. Right. So those two things are really tough to overcome. And when you're trying to overcome uh, an important phase of the game like special teams and overcome untimely penalties, you're really never going to blow anybody out. Maybe there is enough talent here to, to blow people out or win that 35-10 to 10 game, but they're all going to be close if you lose those two phases. And then any given week – your offense can be off or your defense can be off, and we've seen that. But here's what I do know and why I feel confident. They have a young quarterback who, like I said, does things for them that they did not get last year. Yep. There were a couple games in which Deshaun Kaiser was on, but other phases were off completely. And you just can't – you cannot run that – like the Detroit game last year. I thought Kaiser played well, but the defense played poorly. There's just – there's examples. I think even uh, Pittsburgh Week 17 – the D, you know Kaiser threw for I think close to 300 yards. Like they, he's played winnable, you know, games. But you have to have a quarterback who consistently gives you a shot, and I think Mayfield does that. They're playing good defense, and that's that's really important for them because uh, you know you're still running a rookie out there who's going to be behind the eight ball to start as he sort of feels out what the defense is throwing at him, that kind of stuff. So every week you have a defense that can compete and an offense that is getting better and is already competing. So you. you probably going to be in games then and there itself but you're never really into the token in terms of just being blown you know here come the browns to blow us out because you know going into each week you're dealing with a team that's probably going to get in its own way in the penalty aspect of things and then you know you know you're going to have more sound special teams so that's sort of where i'm at they're yep. either going to get beat soundly by somebody or they're going to beat them in a close game and i do think that the the thing and and I think this is an important point to make, Jake. If people are are listening to the beginnings of this conversation and they're thinking, my God, what are these guys doing? They're killjoys. Like, 
I think the Browns are good enough to rise to the level of this. They are. They have enough players now. They have enough good. They have enough of Miles Garrett and Larry Ogunjobi and Demarius Randall and Re- and Denzel Ward. They have enough real players to rise to the level of they deserve to be analyzed this way. They're better than the point of like, oh my gosh, they won a game. Let's have a party. Like it's a it's a it's a compliment to them to say, hey. Let's really break down where they're good enough and where they're not because they are truly making Sundays very interesting. Baker Mayfield, and, and, and you can tell me this. He got sacked five times against the Ravens. I thought he could have been sacked ten. There are times when Baker Mayfield's saving them. The ridiculous play call deep in their own end that Todd Haley admitted on Thursday was a ridiculous play call. And then Baker Mayfield bails them out from deep in their own territory by just doing things kind of on his own. There were times when the pocket collapsed. To me, Baker, Mayf- Baker Mayfield is saving them and making plays basically by himself at times. Is that a, a not a bad sign, but is that proof that the Browns, hey, they their tackles need to play better. They need to give him more time. Or is that life in the NFL on the whole point is that you finally have a quarterback who can do that, and all the best teams have that guy. The Eagles have Carson Wentz. He can save you by himself on a play. Tom Brady can save you. All the best teams, that's what they have. So yeah, there are going to be breakdowns, and then the quarterback saves you. Or did you watch that game last week and think, oh my God, the tackles are going to get Baker killed unless they do better? So that, that's a very fair point and fair question. So, like, I, I'm at the point that I'm with the concept that uh, um, the, you just have to have a good enough line to succeed in the NFL. Like, I don't think you need to trot out Joe Thomas at left tackle to win. Like, a lot of people made that argument. Hey, how are you going to replace you? I don't think you have to have, like, a really, really elite left tackle to win football games in the NFL. I just think you have to be good enough, good enough to win games. And I think so far this year, uh, Desmond Harrison has been good enough to win games. So to the point of, you know, do they do they have to rely on Baker to make crazy plays? I don't necessarily think that. I think you can really get by um, with good enough line play. Like I think the Ravens' defensive line is going to be a really tough matchup for everybody. The, like those the the way. That Terrell Suggs played Desmond Harrison. Not really everybody can play that way. Terrell Suggs is sort of a he's, he's just a bull. Like he like a b u l l bull. Like he is. He is just built that way to bull rush people, and he's anybody who can bull rush people with the strength of Terrell Suggs is going to give your left tackle fits. Yep. Desmond Harris already probably isn't meant to anchor against bull rush type of rush edges, so that was just a bad matchup. But Harrison has been fine the weeks before. So, like in this game, and you talk to a lot of people, some people use it as an example to say, "Yeah, haha, I told you that's who he is." Or some people are using it as well. This is Terrell Suggs, and he's really good. He's one of the best in the league, kind of thing. So I'm I'm of the belief that there, in any phase of life, there are going to be things that are good for you and bad for you. And the Ravens' defensive line is just—they're bad for the Browns' line. That's just how it is. So you do need. Every week is different, Doug. Like some weeks, they're going to need Mayfield to to be able to do the heroic sorts of things that he did, and that's awesome that they now have that guy. Because you you really need that guy, and with, with how protected the quarterback is, you need to be able to have that guy who can create that extra few seconds. He doesn't have to run, but he just needs to get out of situations and create things, and he can do that. And then you're going to have situations where the Browns play two guys like Bruce Irvin and Arden Key in Oakland, where those guys are upfield edge guys that Desmond Harrison's athletically gifted to handle. So it's just really week to week. 
you'll you'll see these sorts of things, and you got to look at it holistically at the end of the year. How did Desmond Harrison handle things? And I think you're probably going to see a guy that handled things pretty well. I think he's he's doing okay. Could they get a better tackle? Maybe they could. could you know, with Nate Solder, who's playing tonight for the Giants, would he have been a better left tackle? Yeah, probably. But also looking at cost and young age and what kind of what does it look like down the line? I think he can be fine. So, you know, Mayfield is. And you, you made a really great statement. I think he is saving them offensively because he's doing a lot of things on his own. I And I, I just don't know anybody who's watching the Browns and who's watched every play like I have multiple times. I'm not sure how you can watch it and say that Baker Mayfield isn't helping them or at certain points creating things on his own right. uh, off, of, off of dumb, silly situations they found themselves in. I just... I, I don't know if you if you know me long enough. In October, after he, what he did to Ohio State, I said I've seen enough. This is the best quarterback on the field this year, and I just think he's really gifted. I don't know what it, it factor thing is. This sort of really quirky statement that people just go to, but whatever it is, Doug, he just has it. He has that ability to get out of the pocket and find guys open, but he has ability the ability to play within structure really soundly and make reads that. That guys like the touchdown on Higgins was on that Mills concept where you have to be able to see the deep safety in a split second that Tony Jefferson jumps the end, the, the dig route over the middle of the field. The ball is out of his hands, perfectly in stride to Higgins in the end zone as he's taking it like that. And he does it. He's able to do it. He's able to get out of. He spins out. I did a video on the YouTube breakdown of him spinning out pocket maneuverability when he made that long run down the left sideline that he. They kind of thought he was out of bounds, but he stayed in bounds. He got called back for a holding, but he just he just does those things well, and that's a part of what I like about him most. Is he's one of the best young quarterbacks, and this I know it's only ten quarters of football for him, but I'm okay with saying it because everything I have seen from him on tape matches what I loved at Oklahoma, and it's he can play within structure really well, and he has elite arm strength. I firmly believe he has elite arm strength. And he can get out and do the heroic stuff that we saw extending that play and throwing to Willies over the middle that, that takes him down the field. Like He can do all of those things. He does the total package stuff, and he's not a quiet guy. He is that loud, sort of um, you know, egotistical leader that you need your quarterback to be. If you Have you ever heard, or, or I'll ask you this, have you ever heard of anybody in Oklahoma or anybody in Cleveland now say a negative thing about that kid? No, no. You hate him when he's on the other sideline, but when he's on your sideline, you love him. Yeah, it, it's it's unique. I, I've just we're lucky. We're lucky to have him, and I feel I don't like I'm watching the Eagles play, and Carson Wentz is playing his butt off, but I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. We have a guy I think does those things now, and will continue to do those things. We have. You know, we talked about this way back when we broke down the Browns' roster-worthy talent. You know, but if, if they get their quarterback, would Sashi Brown's plan have worked? And I would, I would easily imagine Sashi Brown has taken that kid. Yeah, well, that's the whole. Again, and I, and I wrote a thing a couple weeks ago, like that, 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 that this Jake, this wipes, this wipes away any of the regret. Because you don't have to say, oh, we could have had Carson Wentz. Oh, we could have had Deshaun Watson. Oh, if John Dorsey hadn't traded up for Patrick Mahomes, we could have had him. Maybe you say it about Mahomes. Yep. But, it, like, you have your guy. So when you have your guy, you don't have to be jealous of anybody else. Even if the other person is 5% better, it's fine. You have your guy, and you love him. And this was always the plan. There was no guarantee they were going to hit on it. Credit all the credit in the world to John Dorsey in this front office for identifying a guy and picking a guy that maybe went against the norm for for what other people would have done. 
um, and, and finding a franchise quarterback for the Browns. And again, they're 10 quarters in, but I'm with you. I think you can see it and you can say it. This is the guy. But this was always the plan. It was never the idea of, well, you'll get by without this. You need this. But they were going to get it at some point. So this is my question about the offense then, Jake. When you look at it, when you look at Nick Chubb's usage, when you look at Duke Johnson's usage, when you look at the drop rate for, for the receivers, and I know Baker's drop rate, I think, is in the top three in the NFL for how often his passes are dropped by his pass catchers. Are they utilizing this offense the best way it can be utilized, or is there is there something out there for this offense that if they get Chubb more involved, if they get Duke Johnson more involved, as they continue to learn with Baker now as the guy after not getting a lot of first-team reps in the preseason – how much more is out there for this offense, do you think? There's a lot. In my opinion, there's a lot. And I just wrote about Duke Johnson and his other uses, and I wrote an article about that the year before. So I, I, I feel like, and it's always going to be subjective, because I think that there are people in the NFL who make play calling look really easy, the Shanahan's, the McVeigh's, even the John DeFilippo's doing a great job in Minnesota, again, the name we're familiar with. There are guys who do a really good job with it, and I think Todd Haley – he, he's had some highs and he's had some lows, but there is a big adjustment going on to, to going from Tarad to going to Baker. And I think that they're going to try to figure out all of that as they go. So my opinion of we'll start with Duke Johnson is, and I made it, I had kind of tweeted this a week ago, I think Antonio Callaway should be your Will Fuller in the, in Houston and, and uh, Deshaun Jackson down in, uh, Tampa Bay, that lift the lid type guy who's running a ton of stretch routes. Like, like I think Antonio Callaway's seventh or eighth in air yards per target. That means how far downfield he is when he's targeted. And I think John Brown is first for the for the Ravens. Like, you need him to be your lid off the defense guy all the time. Somebody that teams are perpetually nervous about beating them over the top because that extends safety's range and it just opens up everything. But they've been running Callaway a lot in that flat. What I love when I was calling plays myself is jet motion action. So what I mean by jet motion action is that, and it's really popular in college, Ohio State runs it too, is that flat motion right in front of the quarterback. Because what that does is it stretches defenses laterally, and it is really, really popular in the NFL right now. It really messes with linebackers' eye discipline. It messes with D-line angles off of the snap, all of that stuff. It's just really fun. And I just think they have that guy in Duke Johnson. I, from the outside of Berea, think that he would be perfect for it because if you watch him and I made a case in like five different ways you watch him you can make a case for he gets the edge pretty quick so like if you put Callaway and Duke Johnson up and said hey run the 40 against each other Callaway wins it every time but if you put him up and said hey run the 20 against each other I think Duke Johnson probably wins it he gets to top speed faster he gets the edge often so and I tried to put some clips out of, of situations that look similar to running the jet but from a stationary position, which he would be even faster running it, it's a little bit of a head start in motion. He gets the edge really sneakily fast. And that's a big part of what he, you know running jet is you have to actually hand it off every once in a while to keep teams honest. So he would be fantastic in that. And then you could also play him in the slot. And, you, you know, you can use him in the jet motion. You can use him as a thrower. Like he's, he's had snaps in the slot. But he's never had more than about five a game. There's only one game in his entire career with the Browns he had more than about five. Um, slot snaps, or even split out wide, because they split him out once in the Jets game for that first down. I don't know if you recall it, the first down they got, they had, they run him on a kind of a slant return, and he got up the sideline, and they had that weird fumble. Yep. Remember that? 
where everybody thought he was out of bounds, but he wasn't. And Higgins fell on it. But anyway, they've only played him one time. He played him 45 times in the slot week one last year. And he, he was effective. He was very effective catching the ball over the middle. He beat um, uh, a, a Pittsburgh DB, I'm blanking on his name, on a wheel route where Kaiser missed him going up the seam. It would have been about a 50-yard gain. He's made plays, and if I, I refer you to the OR, OBR article if you guys are interested in this data kind of collection I did and the video collection I did. He seems like he can do those things. Maybe, I always give these guys, these NFL head coaches, you know, we try to all act like we're smarter than them sometimes, so I try to step back and put myself in their shoes. Maybe they're, Maybe he can't handle it from a cerebral standpoint. He can't handle the remembering what to do from that position. There's got to be something more to why he's not playing. Because like Hugh Jackson said again today, Duke Johnson's got to see the field more. And I just keep thinking to myself, this doesn't seem hard. Like, why yeah. can't we get him snaps in the slot where he can beat linebackers and safeties and nickel corners and run him in jet motion? He's a decoy. That's okay. He's a better decoy doing that than he is standing next to Todd Haley on the sideline. So I'm just confused as to how they gave him this much money literally the 11th highest paid annual salary guy per year in the NFL this year, most on the Browns in the running back position. And they're justifying playing him 30 snaps a game. He's averaging 32 snaps a game. He should be on the field for 75, 80% of snaps. Find a way to get him in the slot. Even when Higgins is healthy, take Njoku off the field on occasion. Give Callaway a break on occasion. Get him, like Callaway and, and Njoku both can play X. Njoku can play 10 snaps at X and line up solo on the backside and run a slant. Run a hitch, run a vertical route, run a nine was what we call that. Like, he can do those things. He's done it. Last year he had a jump ball back shoulder catch against Jalen Ramsey. He was the best corner in the league. Like, it's just there are pieces that are there, and I'm not understanding why Duke Johnson isn't a part of things. I don't get it. I, yeah. I can justify why Nick Chubb isn't playing a little bit because maybe he's not good enough in pass pro and some assignment issues. He's got to get on the field more, and I thought they did try to get him on the field more. His snap count went up last week. Well, people talk three carries for two yards. That's all he had. Well, that's okay. Sometimes calling run plays where it's just a straight run sort of in the flow of the game doesn't work out perfectly. But I like the, they had him involved earlier. He was on the field more. Yeah, he only got three carries, but sometimes that stuff is sort of, like I said, it's in the flow. It's second and eight. We really don't want to call a run here. Let's keep him off balance, that kind of thing. But what I'm at with Duke Johnson, Doug, I'm just I'm, – I'm, Bewilder. I, I wish I could ask him that question directly. You know, heck, maybe if I'm going up to cover it finally from from a media standpoint Sunday, maybe I'll ask it. I'll, I'll grow a pair and ask it. Nice. I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. I don't have an answer for it because they paid him like they want to use him, but they're just not using him. So here's the thing we can work out, Jake. If you want to, you can whisper smart football stuff in my ear, and then I'll just shout it at Hugh. And we'll <laughs> yeah, double team him that way. You know, that you'll make me sound smart because usually I just scream what's wrong with you. Um, so so let me – so, like, here's the thing, Jake, right? I, and I know my – covering Ohio State for 13 years, It's and it's not always this simple, but it's like best 11, right? Best 11, best 11. Getting your best 11 guys on the field. And I know the Browns use different guys in different positions, and they have a couple different versatile guys like Njoku, like Duke. There have to be times – it's like – they, they almost never have Hyde and Duke in the game together, right? There's got to be times when Hyde in the backfield, Duke in the slot, that's your best 11 in that moment, as opposed to like, well, Hyde's in on first and second down, now Duke's in on third down. Or we'll give, we'll give Duke this series at running back. Okay, Duke's in for three plays and Hyde gets a break. There has to be times when, like you said, especially with Higgins hurt, but it's not like they're so deep at receiver right now. There, no. mu there must be ways that Duke could help them w with 
Hyde or Chubb also on the field, and that's going to put more pressure on a defense than the personnel they're putting out right now. Yeah, I'm just trying to be careful with the signing blame because there are parts of the whole thing that we will never know. You know, like I said, maybe he just can't remember what he's doing. He's a liability. But it seems like a guy in his fourth year in the NFL who you entrusted with that much money yep. would be somebody that I would sit down, Todd and, and Hugh would sit down on Sunday night after the game or Monday morning when they're reviewing the film and say, I need to find a way to get Duke Johnson 60 snaps. How do we do it? Let's map a blueprint. I, I don't get how it's not happening because there are so many creative things going on in the NFL, which is a copycat league. Ask anybody who watches it and is in it. It is a copycat league. And it's just, it is, it is how can we not find this guy 60 snaps to make him worth to us? What we paid him to be worth to us. How can we justify putting the ball in Rod Streeter's hands on a reverse Ugh. in the most important moment of our entire season at that moment, because every play going on that last two minutes is the most important moment of their entire season so far. And they justify putting the reverse in his hands. Like I just need, I need them to take a step back and look at that because and again, I, I don't pretend I'm smarter than these guys, but I just don't understand it. And I have not been given a good reason why not. Like, is Duke not willing to? I don't get it. Like, he says he's willing to. He just made a statement today. He's, he's kind of upset about refs. This is the way he finds the field. This is his money. Like, And if I'm Duke Johnson, I'm thinking, man, slot receivers that are elite get paid more than running backs these days. Like, it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah. So, he could be a poor man's version of Tyreek Hill. Like you don't, you don't find guys who are built like a little muscle hamster and like can run like Tyreek Hill. The guy's a cheetah, man. That's built like a brick wall. So like you don't find those guys everywhere. But Duke can be a version of that, and that's that's my point. Like that is super valuable in the NFL today, and I think you have that there, and you're not tapping into it. And I would just like to know why. That's where I'm at. Jake, I could talk to you all night. I have a feeling people would listen to you all night. But there's kind of a protocol of podcast that you don't do a seven-hour podcast. So I'm, I'm going to let you go, unfortunately. Um, we'll definitely do it again. We'll do it sooner than later. We're super psyched to have you uh, on the site at cleveland.com. Again, everybody out there, you know Jake's work. You know how smart and creative he is in breaking down the Browns. Follow him everywhere, but really make sure you find him now at cleveland.com. Um, that we're lucky to have him there. So Jake... Always a pleasure to talk to you, and I will look forward to seeing you Sunday in the press box, my friend. Hey, I look forward to shaking your hand in person for the first time, buddy. Thanks I appreciate it. Awesome, Jake. I'll talk to you soon, man. All right, thanks. And that's it for this Takes by the Lake. Thanks to Steven. Thanks to Joe. Thanks to Jake. Thanks to you guys for listening. Follow me on Twitter at Doug Lamarice, L-E-S-M-E-R-I-S-E-S. Read me at cleveland.com. Come back every week. Every Friday for Takes by the Lake, Browns, Cavs, Indians. We'll do some Cavs coming up for sure with their season starting. But we're going to keep hitting these Browns especially um, because they're so interesting. So uh, appreciate you guys as always. That was Takes by the Lake, and we'll talk to you next time.